0: You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, Bringing Theology to Life. Good evening, everyone. So, let's turn to Psalm 79 and get into our study. Father, we thank you now for the Word of God. We'd ask that you just give us uh, ears to hear, eyes to see, Lord, hearts to understand what you're saying to your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 78 concluded with the hope of a second Moses character who would appear and shepherd Israel. And this was obviously uh, King David it was referring to. Now Psalm 79, instead of giving us more hope that that was going to be fulfilled, actually changes pace and now tells us what happened to the Davidic dynasty when they failed to remain obedient to the word of God. Psalm 79 and 80 are on the theme of captivity. And it was very challenging and quite thought-provoking spending time in this text this week in the current climate. And hopefully we can pull some applications out for us. So let's just read the first, let's do the first seven verses together. O God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the dead bodies of your servants for food to the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your godly ones to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water round about Jerusalem. And there was none, no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and derision to those around us. How long, O oh Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath upon the nations which you do not know, and upon the kingdoms which do not call cool upon your name, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. So this, the background to this psalm, this is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, by Nebuchadnezzar in the 6th century BC, 587. Most scholars assume that's an accurate date. And it's really connected with the the deportation that Nebuchadnezzar did 11 years previous. It's kind of like an ongoing event, a bit like World War I and World War II. Many see them as a kind of continuation. I think that's what we have going on here. The Babylonian captivity is such a pivotal event in Jewish history to this day, in Jewish life to this day, and in the scriptures, for theological reasons and just cultural reasons too. We're going to see as we go through. So it's important that we understand just how significant this was. It's the fulfillment of much prophecy in the Bible. It's a model for Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24 and the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, it's the Babylonian captivity that is the backdrop for all of this. And all of the major prophets, well, the Isaiah, Jeremiah most of their prophecy is to do with this event. So it takes up a huge portion of the Old Testament too. And interestingly, it's actually one of the most historically attested events that we have in the Bible too. I'll read to you just a small section from the Babylonian Chronicle. These were a small bunch of clay tablets that were found in the early 19th century. And it actually mentions... The first 14 years, it goes through the first 14 years of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's life and his different military campaigns. And in this chronicle, it does talk about the siege of the city of Judah. It's one of the few places we have that city mentioned in an extra biblical text. I'll read to you just a few verses from it. It says, In the seventh year of Nebuchadnezzar, in the month of Chislev, the king of Babylon assembled his army. And after he had invaded the land of Hatti, he laid siege to the city of Judah. And on the second day of the month of Adar, he conquered the city and took the king prisoner. He installed in his place a king of his own choice. And after he had received rich tribute, he sent forth to Babylon. Now this confirms the original siege of Jerusalem and the installation of a puppet king. If you remember the story, Jeconiah was killed at that time, or deported rather, and then he placed his man Zedekiah, so he had like a puppet on the throne there. Quite specific details confirmed by archaeology. Now, the, uh, the Babylonian Chronicles were translated by a man called Donald J. Wiseman. He was the head of the Assyriology Department at the British Museum. Now, interestingly, I didn't really realise at the time, that like, I actually had that man in my house at one point. Like, He was a, a father of my parents' friends. When I still lived at home, he came round. I remember sitting having tea with him. Of course, it was way before my, my nerd days, so I had absolutely no idea who he was and what he'd done. I'd like to sort of replay that moment over now, and I could really have a lot of questions for him, but he was the man who translated them, did the church a great service in that regard. He was a good believer. So we find this exact information confirming the narrative about the the puppet king, and all the historians are pretty much agreed on the historicity of this account. But I will just point out one thing here that you see going on in the secular world. You notice we have huge amounts of historical writings in the Bible, very early texts, BC-era texts, listing how this happened, but there's always a question mark hanging over it. One clay tablet, and everyone's like, yep, that's the truth, that's it, it's real. And I just want you to see the confirmation bias there and the way this often works in archaeology. The Bible w- automatically suspects everything else, automatically you know, validates it, and that's just, just how it works. But for, but for us, we know this is true, and this is a good confirmation in these sorts of things. Now, you'll find... I want to just look at the destruction and the reasons for it a little bit. You'll find it in 2 Kings 24-25, you'll find it in Jeremiah 39 and Jeremiah 52, all talk about this event, the destruction of Jerusalem. I want us to turn to the Second Chronicles 36 account, please. We're going to read about 10 verses, because there's a few things I want to pull out for you that form the backdrop of what is happening in this psalm, and they're also instructive for us today. So we're going to read just 10 or so verses from this. Second Chronicles 36, verse 10. It says this, at the turn of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon with the valuable articles of the house of the Lord, and he made his kinsman Zedekiah king over Judah and Jerusalem. Exactly what the Babylonian Chronicle says. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke for the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear allegiance by God. But he stiffened his neck, he hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. And furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. The Lord... The God of their fathers sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. And therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. All the articles of the house of gold, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his officials, he brought them all to Babylon. And then they burned, they, they burned the house of God and broke down the walls of Jerusalem, burned all of its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. Those who had escaped from the sword were carried away to Babylon." This is the event, massive event in Scripture, theologically. We see it mentioned in many Psalms. We see it referenced throughout the Bible. In fact, the entire book of Lamentations is written by Prophet Jeremiah. It's literally just one long lament over what happened to Jerusalem, pretty much. Now, the question that you want to ask is, why did, we get to the, why did the nation of Israel get to this state? And I believe this is what Asaph is asking in our Psalm here, where, verse 5, where he cries out, yeah, How long, O Lord? Will you be angry forever? Why? Because it says he poured out wrath. That's what this was, the result of wrath. But also notice, it says that he came in compassion first, again and again, sending messages for the people to repent. And eventually, he couldn't do that anymore, and judgment had to fall. They ended up with a totally pagan rule. King Nebuchadnezzar was a fierce ruler, pagan ruler. Babylonian Empire was a huge machine, and it took over and took control of Israel. Look at verse 12, of, not of, uh, of uh, the text in Second Chronicles that we just read. It gives a very good reason. It says, The king did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not humble himself before the prophet who spoke for the Lord. And then it says that the officials and the priests in verse 14 were unfaithful. They followed the abominations of the nations. That means they followed the culture of the Babylonians. You remember when Daniel and his friends were deported and they were educated in all the culture of the Babylonians. Obviously, Daniel stayed faithful, we all know that story, but it seems that the priests, many of them, were just absorbing the cultures of the surrounding nations that they had at this time. They defiled the house, they defiled the sanctuary, and they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words. Very important phrase there. because When you despise the words of God, you really despise God because you cannot separate God from his word. And that's why you scoff at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. They mocked the messengers, despised the word, scoffed at the people, defiled the sanctuary, and the officials and the priests absorbed the abominations of the nations. Now notice, it talks about both the leaders and the people here, and I think the two are very much linked, because the leaders first strayed from the Lord, and they imitated the nations. Thus, when they rejected the prophets, the people would reject the prophets. That's what we have here. Not only reject them, they would actually mock them, despise them, and do all these things that we read about in the Bible. Jeremiah, in the book of Jeremiah, which is, imagine Jeremiah coming to Israel and trying to call them to repentance. A prophet's ministry is a very hard ministry, I'd imagine, if you think of the climate at this time, a very much apostate nation. I'm sure Jeremiah felt very much alone in his message at that time but if you turn i'm going to just give you i'll just read it to you. you don't need to turn there's a few verses in the book of jeremiah every time i read jeremiah this, these verses always stand out to me it's in the first like six chapters and they build up and it, he gives his reasons about why israel ended up being absolutely devastated slaughtered by babylon And it starts off with that very famous passage my people have committed two evils, but they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, to hew cisterns for themselves that can hold no water. That's the first thing that really jumps out. I'm, going to, I'm not going to read all of them. Jeremiah 5, it then says this, this is, listen, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule on their own authority. Now in Israel, you had priests and you had the line of the prophets too, didn't you? They were the two main religious institutions that we had at this time. And it was a horrible thing, Jeremiah says, that was happening in the land. The prophets were prophesying. Elsewhere it says vain imaginations of their own heart and deceptions. And the priests were ruling on their own authority. That means God was not their authority in what they were doing. They had taken that over for themselves. And then it says, listen, so you have those two religious institutions and then you have the connection between the leaders and the people. It says, my people love it So, I find that such a challenging verse, because you can imagine these people being led by their religious leaders into these sorts of things and just taking great pleasure in all the debauchery and the idolatry that was happening at this time. And then Jeremiah asked this question, but what will you do in the end of it? We have the answer to that question, Babylonian captivity, the destruction of Jerusalem. He goes on a little bit further in in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 19. He says, Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster on this people, the fruit of their plans, because they have not listened to my words. And as for my law, they have rejected it also. Prophets were prophesying falsely, the priests were doing their own thing, and they all rejected the word of the Lord. That is what you need to go into captivity. That is a recipe for captivity, not just for Israel, for the church, for nations too. We see all of these same themes, I believe, in our culture today. Now, if you look around, as it's impossible not to do at the moment. You see many people, the church included, arguing bitterly with one another, divided on almost every point that you could imagine, placing their hopes in all sorts of different things that, really are ultimately going to be futile, whether it's government, whether it's politics, whether it's their own particular prophet that has given them a prophet. We've seen this in the last few months, in the last year, in the last few weeks particularly. I believe a lot of idolatry within the church has been exposed recently. And a lot of blindness in the church has also been exposed on other sides. The charismatic arm of the church and I'm not against the charism- biblical charismata is absolutely a good thing, but just speaking broadly, the charismatic arm of the church is currently at war with itself. I don't know if you've noticed that. And this is all of the fallout to do with the Donald Trump prophecies. Many of the leading prophets gave, obviously, the prophecy that they're still, it would still be in another term in the presidency. And now many of the more biblical sound charismatics are calling them to repent And admit and many of them are not and they're still standing their ground and if you've followed the back and forth it's just extremely embarrassing extremely bad witness it's ugly and the charismatic arm I believe is actually having a split here so we get another split coming and as I was thinking about these sorts of things watching the fallout I had those words of Jeremiah in my head the prophets prophesy falsely my people love it so and this is what you see this tribalism people just digging their heels in, not willing to admit that they're wrong, people going after them for being wrong in a puritanical way, and it's just, I find it just quite depressing to watch. Now here's the thing to understand historically for our text about the captivity of the nation Israel. When you had exile, when you had captivity physically like we did now, it was always a picture of their spiritual exile from God. Okay, it would not have happened if they were not spiritually exiled from God. That's what, the continual lesson that we see throughout the Old Testament. It didn't matter about the size of their army. didn't matter about all these other things. All that mattered is that they were spiritually in line with their God. But as Jeremiah tells us, they had rejected that God for other things, other systems that cannot hold no water. They despised the word of God. They mocked the prophets of God. And thus, they were in spiritual exile long before they went into physical exile. And that's a good lesson for us today. So as we can look around, we can lament what's happening, quite often we we need to just turn, stop for a minute, and take a good long look at ourselves. Because captivity and exile really begin in our hearts, they begin in the spiritual realm, and they begin in the house of the Lord. As we see here, it was the leaders that led the nation into captivity. Fast forward to the time of Jesus, it was the leaders that led the nation in rejection of Messiah. Fast forward even more to that, It'll probably be the leaders that lead the religious bodies of the day to worship the Antichrist. We see this over and over again in the scripture. They were not captive to the word of God. They had been captivated by the world, and that was the problem. Now, let's read uh, from verse 8 onwards back in Psalm 79. Do not remember the iniquities of our forefathers against us, <clears throat> Let your compassion come quickly to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, and forgive our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let there be known among the nations in our sight, vengeance for the blood of your servants which has been shed. Let the groaning of the prisoner come before you, according to the greatness of your power, preserve those who are doomed to die, and return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom, the reproach with which they have reproached you, O Lord. So we, your people, and the sheep of your pastor will give thanks to you forever. To all generations, we will tell of your praise. Do not remember our sins, he says in verse 8. Now he's speaking on behalf, really, of the exiled survivors now. Asaph is humbling himself. He's acknowledging the sins of his people, of himself and his people. And he's pleading the compassion of God. My, my version there says compassion. Some of you may read tender mercies. I actually happen to prefer tender mercies a little bit there. I think it's more gives a nice description of what we're talking about. And you find the same word being used of Jesus and of God in many places. I like that picture as we think about God. Even as we're talking about judgment, we know that he first always comes in compassion to call his people back to him. He never stops that. He says, help us, O God of our salvation, verse 9. So he acknowledges that salvation can only really come from the Lord. He's not going to the king of Egypt like many of his predecessors or people would to try and seek a larger army to to find an alliance with against Babylon. He knows he's got to go to the Lord. And then it says, For the glory of your name. And this should really be the central issue for all of God's people at all times. It should guide our conduct and our speech in this world. Does it bring God glory? Do you remember Paul's writing to the Corinthians? Whatever, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And then it says that your name may be honored. And I found this interesting. All these little phrases kind of grouped together, that your name may be honored. Now, if I put that into New Testament language, it would pretty much directly translate, hallowed be your name, if we were reading from, from the King James there. Hallowed be your name. And we all recognize that from the Lord's Prayer. It is the highest and purest ground for prayer, that God's name be honoured. It echoes the Lord's Prayer. But it's not just that phrase. We, see that, actually, we actually see so many things from the Lord's Prayer here. First of all, it was addressed to God, our Father, God in heaven. And then it says, for the glory of your name. That's the same as saying, hallowed be your name. And then it says, forgive us our sins in verse 9. We know that from the Lord's Prayer too. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That's, from the, that's the Lord's Prayer. And then it also says, and deliver us in this one verse here too, and that is also from the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is exactly what Asaph is praying here, and I find it interesting, because often we like to think that Jesus was giving just a totally brand new prayer there. A lot of people have that impression about Jesus, that he went around just completely contradicting everything from his history of Israel and just giving all new stuff. Now, yes, there was a new element to much of it, but much of it, He was just drawing on the history that he had in Israel from the Bible, and prayer was one thing that he did that a lot. And you see these four elements here put into the Lord's Prayer. And think about the context. He was teaching his disciples to pray in the midst. You know, It was only 40 years when the nation was going to go back into captivity. Jerusalem was going to be destroyed again. Jews were going to be taken, deported this time by the Roman government again the nation at that time when Jesus was born, were also rejecting him, just like was happening back here. So you can see why there's a link. The context is very much the same. But it wasn't that they were rejecting the prophets of God at this stage, they were rejecting God himself, who had come and dwelt among them at this time. Forgive us our sins, he says. You see, if the temple is destroyed and sacrifices can no longer be offered, how will Israel obtain atonement for our sins? At this time, when Asaph's writing, the temple's gone, like it's destroyed. All the articles have been carried off to Babylon. But yet he's still saying, forgive us our sins, and he, this, again, points us towards that understanding that the righteous remnant had, is, the Lord himself, in the, in the sense that forgive sins, not the act in the sacrificial system. He's looking towards that greater atonement, we might say. He probably has the thought of Genesis 22 in his mind, the lamb caught in the thicket, the Lord himself will provide. Or the prophecies of Daniel. Remember the 70-week prophecy where it says to make an end of sin, to make an atonement for iniquity. He's talking about this future one who will come and provide an atonement that we know from the book of Hebrews that will be a once and for all atonement. Oh, sorry. Now, I was thinking about this. I always like to use historical illustrations. You know that. I came across one in a, a very old Brethren Thing that I was reading online in, like, an archives for something else actually, but it was relating to this psalm. And I often don't like to use illustrations that have done the rounds in, in preaching material because I always find that they're kind of you read them in lots of different places and they kind of change slightly as they go around the world and so maybe embellished to fit the context slightly. So I'm always dubious about them, but because this was a historical one, it drew me in. But I did actually research it, and check out the historicity of it. If you, go to, if you go to Paris today, I forget which museum it is, one of the museums, there's a book called the Chancellery Book. We have something similar in the UK called the Doomsday Book. You might drive around the UK and you see these little plaques. This village is mentioned in the Doomsday Book. It's like a 12th century record basically of all things and taxes. And The one in France does the same and it keeps a record of which towns and which cities and which important people pay the taxes and the money. And as you go through this book, you get to a page that says Dom Remy, which was a, a town in France. And as you look at this page, it's got no, nothing written on it, whereas all the others have just dates and, money and figures written on it. And across the page, there is written in France, written in French rather, free for the maid's sake. Now, Dom Remy, had to look into this, was the home of Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc was the, she was known as the Maid. Of Orleans, and she was made. She was called the Maid of Orleans because of, if you know the history, she helped Charles the Seventh, Charles the get the French throne by throwing off the English and being involved in the Hundred Years' War. And as a thank you, King Charles said to her, "You have one wish, whatever you want." And her wish was that the people of her hometown would never have to pay taxes again, ever. And that lasted up until the French Revolution, and then they had to start paying taxes again. But so it lasted for, for a good period of time. But it was those words, free, no debt, no taxes, for the maid's sake. And it had me thinking about just the way it was a book. And you know you see these things about the book of life and the book of the judgment and all these works and their good deeds and their bad deeds. And you can think of our atonement very much like that. We look at the book and where our page is there, instead of having things written on it, it just has free. But not for the maid's sake, for his sake, for the blood of the lamb. And For me, that was just a lovely uh, picture of atonement. Our sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Let's look at verse 11. <clears throat> Let the groaning of the prisoner come before you. According to the greatness of your power, preserve those who are doomed to die and return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom. Asaph now continues to intercede on behalf of those captives in Babylon. You may recognize this language, it's very reminiscent of the years of when they were captives in Egypt, the groaning of the prisoner rising up to the throne of God. This is exactly how it reads in the book of Exodus, that he heard the groaning of his people as it came up to the throne. I believe Asaph's making that connection uh, purposely. This is one thing, as as one of the best things that I love about studying the different parts of the Bible is the way that you see that it's just all connected. like All the allusions, and we probably only pick up on (laughs) not as many as there are, I'm sure, but these writers, the way they draw on their history and their background all through, right through to the New Testament, and you can pick up so much just by looking at what they're alluding to and making the, the connections in the context. Verse 13, so we, your people and the sheep of your pastor will give thanks to you forever. To all generations we will tell of your praise. James James Boyce, Bible expositor, he ends his uh, commentary, he says, Psalm 77 ended with God shepherding the people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron at the time of the Exodus and the desert wanderings. Psalm 78 ended with God shepherding his flock by the hands of David during the time of the monarchy. In Psalm 79... This is now extended into the present and beyond, which is a way of saying that God will always be our good shepherd. This is true, which is why the psalm rightly ends with praise. I thought that was a lovely way to end it. Even though we've looked at some horrible history for the nation of Israel, it does end with praise. God is the great shepherd. And amazingly now, we're going to go straight into Psalm 80 because we see this shepherd theme just continued and picked up again in the very first verse. So let's just jump straight in. Most assume that Psalm 80 was actually now not written against the backdrop of the Babylonian captivity. It's actually written against the backdrop of the Assyrian captivity that happened a little bit before and concerned the northern kingdom of Israel. And that's why there is debate, if you know, about whether this is actually a different Asaph or he's writing prophetically. No one really knows. There's just lots of stuff written about it. You know what theologians are like. Let's read. O give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, You who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh stir up your power and come to save us. O God, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. So you have this phrase, the shepherd of Israel. And if you are aware, the shepherd of Israel is, again, one of these massive themes that you can trace all through the Bible. And interestingly, it's mentioned in conjunction with the northern captivity and both the southern captivity captivity. The book of Jeremiah that we were reading, which concerns the Jude at the southern captivity. Jeremiah 3, it says this, verse 14. Return, O faithless sons, declare the Lord, for I am master to you, and I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. You have this future picture as opposed to the shepherds who had led them into captivity, one day you'll have shepherds who will lead you uh, in this time when you'll be in Zion, presumably with the king. And then we have Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel is prophesying to the northern kingdom. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all places to which they are scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. So we see that great shepherd motif being formulated through the prophets here. And it was a very unusual opening. He talks about Joseph. Most people believe Joseph is being used to speak of Israel as the whole there. The reason why is if you remember back to Genesis 49, when when Jacob is blessing all the sons of Israel, verse 22, he says this, Joseph is a fruitful bar, a fruitful bow by a string, its branches run over a wall, the archers are bitterly attacked, and it goes on for a bit, and then it says, from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd. So that's, I I believe he's using that because that's really one of the first times you see this term, the shepherd, uh, as a prophecy of the nation that will happen and come from the 12 tribes. And then verse three, O God, restore us, cause your face to shine upon us. What does that remind you of? The very famous prayer in Numbers. We call it the Aaronic or the Priestly Blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. Cause his face to shine upon you. Lift his countenance. That's, again, I believe what Asaph is getting at here. Living in Jerusalem, the ace of the family and the descendants of Asaph. They would have been very familiar with this prayer. And it's a lovely... Uh, Expression here, the shine upon us is really talking about having favor. May God have favor uh, upon us in who he is. And then he says, restore us. This is a cry, not just for national restoration, but I believe in Asaph's heart also for spiritual restoration or spiritual revival, we would call it. We'll see that again a little later in the psalm. Let's read verse 4. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with the prayer of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears, and you have made them to drink tears in large measure. You make us an object of contention to our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. O God of hosts, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. He's lamenting here what has happened to his nation due to divine discipline and the imagery is very strong this imagery of the people of Israel in captivity it says their bread is dipped in tears and their cups are filled with tears the idea here is that during their feasting in all parts of the day you have this continual expression of grief the people are just in captivity basically spiritually and physically and they are grieving for what they lost in Zion, grieving for their God, and it's just a very uh, strong imagery that we get here in the Psalms. If you read through Ezekiel, just like we did through Jeremiah, you'll see some reasons again for the captivity, and I'm always fascinated by reasons for captivity, because I think when the New Testament says we need to learn the lessons of Israel, this is the main lesson of Israel. Most of the Old Testament is concerning the northern and the southern captivities, Like I say, all the major prophets, all the minor prophets are at some point in the chronological history connected to these two events. Let me read to you Ezekiel 6, verse 9. We'll just do one from Ezekiel. It says, Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations to which they will be carried captive, how I have been hurt by their adulterous hearts which turned away from me, and by their eyes which played the harlot after other idols." And they will loathe themselves in their own sight for the evils that they have committed for all of their abominations. They are wandering from God. We know elsewhere that they were, again, listening to lying prophets. They had lying leaders, shepherds who were not shepherds, basically. They were not following God, and they were allowing something to actually take the place of God. This is classic idolatry. It's, I love the way he puts it. He You you often see this in the Old Testament. It's done in a relationship language. Their eyes were drawn away and they were looking at another woman. is the the imagery that's being presented here. And thus they went and committed adultery. Everyone understands that imagery. And it was so strong in the Old Testament. That is the way God is presenting it here. And the idol in this case was probably actual idols that the pagan nations, the abomination of the nations had around them. But we could just as easily substitute that with anything that causes our eyes to stray and look elsewhere from our king. And let's not lie, there are plenty of things that cause us to do that in this world. And because of this, they had been made low. And that's an expression. They had not humbled themselves, they had been humbled by divine discipline. This is the ultimate end of adultery. And it wasn't just low, it was to the point that the pagan nations around them were actually laughing at them. And again, I found this so challenging and instructive. Think of the situation. Israel was called into being to be a light, to be set apart, to be holy, to be different, to be that nation placed at Jerusalem in the center of all nations, the prophet Ezekiel says, for that exact purpose that from the center, the knowledge of God could go out by this people who were called. They had different laws. That's what all of these weird laws that you read about in Leviticus before, to set them apart. their their system of worship and all these things were different in many ways. That was what they were called to do, to witness to the God of Israel, and the nations would be drawn to them. You remember the glory days when the Queen of Sheba just traveled to hear the wisdom of Solomon. These are the imagery that we're talking about. But notice, when Israel became like the nations, as we see as as it goes down and down throughout the history that we've read, they absorbed its culture, they absorbed the gods of the nations around them, the behavior, I'm sure what they thought at that moment was, if we are like them, then we'll just be one of them, we'll be accepted by them. And what I found so shocking is that, no, even though they were doing the same things, worshiping the same false gods, engaging in the same behavior of all the other nations, there was still something different because the nations didn't accept them, the nations ridiculed them. And that's because they were a chosen people and the name of God was planted on them. It doesn't matter how much they tried to get away from that, they were never accepted by the nations. Even when they imitated the nations, the nations ridiculed them. And I found that very, very challenging. If there was ever a lesson that the church needs to understand in this day, it is that trying to be like the nations will never get us accepted or liked by the nations. It will only get us ridiculed by the nations because all it shows us is that our profession is not matched by our practice. And thus, why believe any of it? And you can't really blame people for making that assumption. The actual thing that made them attractive, that made them a marvel, a light, as it's called, was when they were walking with their God. And this was the God who put all of that in the the whole tabernacle system where he wanted to come and dwell with his people. That was what set them apart and that was what made the nations stream to them. And one day in the future, we see that same imagery again. Now the church has that that role. Actually, we we are a temple of the Holy Spirit now and we're supposed to have the same principle. One day we'll see when actual the king reigns in Zion, that imagery again of all the nations going up will be fulfilled in that glorious way. But the same principle applies to us today. And then verse 7, we have that refrain again, God restore us, make your face shine upon us, look upon us with favor. And that is really the cry of the remnant. If we want to know what the church should really be doing at this time, many people are confused. Do we need to get more involved in the political systems? Do we need to support all these different things? And I'm not saying some of them are not good things to support. But chief above all of those things, we need to be crying out to God that his face would shine upon us again. Let's look at verse eight. You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow and the cedars of God with its boughs and it was sending out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why have you broken down its hedges so that all who pass that way pick its fruit? A boar from the forest eats it away and whoever moves in the field feeds on it. So we've seen the shepherd imagery, now we have the vine imagery, the vineyard imagery. Again, very common of Israel through the Old Testament. We see it all through the Bible. Asaph describes here the vine that was uh, removed from Israel, planted in the promised land, talking about obviously the, the nation coming from Egypt into the promised land. However, then he says the vine dresses basically did not take care of the vineyard and we have this, again, description of a wild boar running in. If you can imagine a, a wild boar, if you've ever seen them, they're, they're really low to the ground, and they're massive horns, and they're pretty powerful, just running into a new vineyard, all these vines that haven't grown up fully and just destroying it. That's basically the imagery again that the psalmist is giving us here. A boar from the forest breaks in and destroys the vineyard. So this is again important. Again for me, it shows us the importance of leaders, wrong leaders, wrong people in places of authority, will often lead to very bad results. This is why I believe that you have the continued instruction to pray for leaders, whether they're your church leaders or leaders you don't like, government leaders, there needs to be prayer given to leaders. Many a great vineyard has been ruined when wild boars are allowed to enter of it, metaphorically speaking. Yes, I believe here he's obviously referring to the great Assyrian army, which was probably more vicious than the Babylonian army. If you go to the British Museum today and you look at some of the Assyrian panels and various other I think in Berlin they have huge amounts of the Assyrian panels and you'll see pictures of what they did to the slaves and what they did to captives and they're they're pretty graphic even for for those times of the things they used to do sort of things you'd see in horror movies today that was the Assyrian army. Now you see it wouldn't have mattered how large or vicious the army was They never would have got in if they hadn't, remember those things we read in Jeremiah, if they hadn't turned away from the Lord, turned away from the word of God. it Wouldn't matter if Israel had no army. If they were still walking with the Lord, the Assyrians would never have got in. They never would have been on the gates. And that's the lesson here. In many ways, the history of Israel is a record of failure. Starts out well, but sooner or later the ball gets in. The theocracy under Joshua started out well, it ended up in ruins, David and Solomon's monarchies crumbled. Again and again we see this. Reforms restored them temporarily, but again they crumble. It gets worse. All the way up to the advent of Christ, really, we see that same theme. And let's not think that the church is immune to that, that repeti- repetition that we see. It happened to us too. Just as in the early church, the church arose to power, it became degenerate. We had the imperial church under Rome that went on for hundreds, hundreds of years with small bits of light happening, but a lot of that was terrible history. Then we had the Reformers. They popped up for a season, but then even the Reformation churches went through the same degeneration that we see, and the cycle just repeats itself. The, the lesson is, <laughs> we are sinners. We need the Lord, and we have to place our hope in the Lord, and that is why, like Asaph, the, the souls who are the remnant, who are the real people seeking the Lord, we have that cry, O oh Lord, make your face shine, shine, uh, shine upon us again, At this time, oh God, save us. That is basically our cry. Now notice the larger point being made here. It's again another one of these connections. He's used two images for Israel, a vine and a shepherd. That is what Israel would have known both of those images intimately. And is it any wonder when we see the incarnate Son of God on this earth trying to call the leaders to repentance and to recognize the prophet, as he was fulfilling the role of prophet at that time, he uses these same two images. That is why he says to them, I am the great shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's why he says, I am the vine. He's not, he's not just making these up because they're good pictures of sheep and shepherds and vines. They come from the Old Testament. They were so meaningful to Israel at that time. And that's why he does that. Uh, it's very powerful speeches, both of those. Let's read verse 14. O God of hosts, turn again now, we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine, even the shoot which your right hand has planted and on the son whom you have strengthened for yourself. It is burned with fire, it is cut down, they perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name O Lord God of hosts, restore us. Cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. So verse 14, O God of hosts, turn again now, we beseech you. This is really the the crux of the whole psalm, we could say. It's a plea that in his mercy he would look on them again. Basically, do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. It is God who must bring the straying sheep back. They will never really come back on their own. Which is again why when Jesus gave that illustration of the shepherd going after the wandering sheep. It wasn't just a good illustration that proved his point. It was an illustration rooted in the history of Israel that they all would have understood very well. Verse 17, let your hand be upon the man of your right hand. It's an unusual expression, upon the son of man. Many people immediately jump and say this is a prophecy of Messiah. I think it is in one sense, but I'm cautious about immediately applying that phrase to the Messiah because... In this context, I think it's first referring to Israel because they were called God's son and the son of man in that sense. That's what Benjamin's name actually means, son of thy right hand. He's making a play on words there. But ultimately, we do know when we read the book of Ephesians, the book of Hebrews, that the ultimate shepherd of Israel is the one at God's right hand. Let look at verse 18. I just want to close by spending a little bit more time, five minutes or so, just on this. It says, Then we shall not turn back from you, then we shall not turn back for you. I want to briefly talk with you now about the subject of backsliding. Real serious issue. Uh, It's one that's huge amounts of debate. I'm not so much talking about once saved, always saved, and and that debate that we have. And before we say, well, that's not me, (laughs) It's never going to happen to me, I believe this is something that we must all watch for. If the history of Israel teaches us anything, it's that even the most spiritual men are prone to go through periods of backsliding. And I, I don't know about you, but I've never really more grieved of when I see or hear of those who have been walking with the Lord, who you've seen the glint of heaven in their eyes, you've seen the Lord work in their life before, but you hear or see that some, for some reason they are no longer walking with the Lord or they are turning to the other path. Now, there are many causes for this. Some would immediately jump in and say, you know, it's a result of a, a, a gospel that doesn't preach repentance, that... Only leads to an emotional acceptance of Christ, and I think in many cases that's probably true, but not in all cases. Like, there are cases where these are definitely people who know the Lord and have been walking with the Lord, and this happens to them. I would venture to say it's not primarily to do with big, obvious moral failings. Those things are obvious, they get exposed, and you can work from them. Well, that's true for some, but I would say it's the more subtle lies of the enemy the attempt to shoulder burdens that the Lord never asked you to, weariness, build-up of doubt, living a joyless Christianity that will lead to a state of personal declension. And I've used that as an unusual phrase. It comes from a man called Octavius Winslow. Do you remember last week Doug listed a load of great uh, British preachers? This is another one for you. He was a Puritan preacher called Octavius Winslow. He was the man, actually, he was very popular at one period, He was the man that Spurgeon asked to open his church when they first opened the Metropolitan Tabernacle. It was Winslow who did the first message there before before Spurgeon. He wrote a book called Personal Declension, and it's all about this issue, and it's fascinating to read. I'm going to read to you just a few extended quotes from it here as we uh, wrap this up. He says this, If there is one consideration more humbling than another to a spiritually minded believer it is that after all God has done for him, after all the rich displays of his grace, the patience, the tenderness of instructions, the repeated discipline of his covenant, the tokens of love received, and the lessons of experience learned, there should still exist in the heart a principle, the tendency of which is to seek is to secret, perpetual and alarming departure from God. Truly there is in this solemn fact that which might well lead to the deepest self-abasement before him. He goes on a few pages later. By a state of incipient declension, that's what he talks, backsliding basically, we mean that decay of spiritual life and grace in the believer, which marks its earliest and more concealed stage. It is latent and hidden, and therefore the least suspected and the more dangerous the painful process of spiritual disease may be advanced in the soul so secretly, so silently and so unobservedly that the subject of it may have lost much ground, may have parted with many graces and much vigor and may have been beguiled into an alarming state of spiritual barrenness and decay before even a suspicion of his real condition has been awakened in his bosom. What he's basically saying is backsliding does not come. You wake up one morning and you don't believe God. It comes slowly slowly quietly, little by little, lie by lie. Quite often when you're still active in church, when you're still going through all the motions, you don't realize, and then before you go, it all hits you at once. And that I've you know, seen that in people's lives. We know that is very true. He goes, that's the first half of the book, and in the second half of the book, it's, it's called Personal Declension and Revival of Religion in the Soul. And It's obviously how, what to do about backsliding. And during the end of the book, he gives the eight principles. I'm going to read them to you now. They're brilliant. He says, but we desire now to show that for every poor, self-condemned, heartbroken, returning soul, there is a lingering affection in the heart of the Father, a welcome in the blood of Jesus, and therefore every encouragement to arise and come to God. The first direction which we would give in the way of recovery is acquaint yourself thoroughly with the real state of your soul as before God. It's what we find in the New Testament. Try and examine what it is, the breadcrumbs basically, that have led to this. The second step, to discover and bring to light the cause of the soul's declension. The next step in the work of personal revival is to take the cause of the soul's declension immediately to the throne of grace and lay it before the Lord. Essentially connected with the discovery and the confession, there must be the entire mortification and abandonment of the cause of the soul's secret declension. Five endeavor to enrich and enlarge your mind with more spiritual apprehensions of the personal glory, love, and fullness of Christ. Six, but that which forms the great secret of all personal revival is yet to be disclosed, and we allude to the fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. This is a declining soul. This, the declining soul, needs more than all beside. And seven, one word more, Be not surprised if the Lord should place you in circumstances of deep trial in order to recover you from your soul declension. The Lord often adapts the peculiarity of the discipline to that to your case. And lastly, set out afresh for God and heaven, as though you had never started in the way of declension. And I think all of those things are just, and obviously books expand on them much more, are just brilliant, a thought for us. And it's how this psalm is ended. In verse 18, the last verse there where it says, revive us and we will call upon your name. Now we have the call for revival and it follows naturally on from a call for backsliding. Billy Sunday said, when is there revival needed? When carelessness and unconcern keep the people asleep. It's a good description of today's world. There's a lot of things to care about. There's a lot of things to keep us preoccupied. and We, we sleep. Francis Schaeffer said, what is revival? Brilliant quote. He says, Reformation is a return to sound doctrine. Revival is the practice of that doctrine under the power of the Holy Spirit. Probably one of the best definitions you'll get. Vance Havner simply says, Revival is the church falling in love with Jesus all over again. Again, very good, very good. This is what we need today. I believe this is what the psalmist prays during these dark days of captivity. And then he says, Let your face uh, restore us and face shine upon us again. And he ends with that final refrain We want God's favor. We want his face to shine upon us. He is really all in all, the great shepherd, the true vine, the son, the one at the right hand of the father. And as we watch the world almost implode on itself, we can take comfort that this is the God who we serve and we can cry afresh to him for that personal revival that I believe ultimately is what you have to have if you want social revival too. Basically, Jesus is everything. Amen? Let's pray. Father. We do thank you so much just for all the truths in these, uh, just these two psalms, Lord God. Your word is so rich. I pray that we would never stop mining the truth from it. I pray that your spirit would be continually putting these things on our hearts. We do cry out to you, Lord, for revival. We pray that you would help us to look at anything in our own lives, our own souls that are stopping us, awake us, Lord, keep us from being asleep, spiritually speaking. Would you just revive us, Lord? We want your face to shine upon us. In Jesus' name, for his sake we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.